ESG, science or fiction? What does a head of sustainability actually do? What skills should such a person have? Is having a sustainability specialist just another form of greenwashing? Nowadays, everybody on LinkedIn is an ESG or sustainability expert, and every asset manager is a leader in ESG. Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investments at Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is Kim Schumacher, Professor of Sustainable Finance and ESG at Kyushu University, a PhD graduate of the Tokyo University and a member of the Global Sustainability Standards Board. Kim, I know that understates the breadth of your accomplishments as we've worked together in the past, but welcome to Organising the Future. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. And as you said, we already had uh, several encounters in the past, which were uh, very pleasant and always very informative uh, for me also as an academic to learn about the practitioner side. So I do uh, looking forward, or I am looking forward to the conversation today. That's very kind. And, you know, I have to say that uh, those original conversations really helped shape some of my thinking, my role of head of sustainable investments, particularly collaboration with academia. But that's a topic we'll come back to later in the conversation. But let's start with the concept of what actually is a head of sustainability. What's right and what's wrong with that uh, title? So head of sustainability, and it comes down to our definition of what sustainability actually is. Uh, there's one definition of the United Nations as uh, uh, indicated or as uh, determined in the 1987 Brundtland Report, where they said it is basically just that current generations try to maintain resources in a way that they will still be available uh, to future generations. And I think that is the key of what sustainability signifies. It is that we as current generation, we try to manage, we try to uh, utilize resources, natural resources, especially planetary resources in a way that they can be regenerated at the pace at which we're utilizing them or which we're using them, extracting them. And that comes to the core, whereas with over time, the notion of sustainability has been kind of being reframed. It always depends on what kind of stakeholder are you talking to. Well, for every stakeholder group, you will find a different definition of what sustainability is, which is true because it can be highly contextual. However, at the end of the day, for me as an environmental scientist, it basically boils down to the notion of resources once again, because we live on a floating rock in space that sustains human life and every other type of planetary life forms. And that is the key because we are dependent on these systems, ecosystems, working, functioning, in order to also sustain human life. And if those break down, then we as humans, as humanity, as, a collect as this collective, we will find ourselves in trouble. And then it becomes the role of every stakeholder group to identify in what ways do they impact ecosystems or biodiversity or other planetary systems, and in what ways do planetary systems impact their 
activities. And I think that is a key thing of what a head of sustainability should be doing. A head of sustainability should be identifying within an organization, within an institution, how does our organization impact sustainability and what are some of the elements, what are some of the things we can do in order to become more sustainable, in order to foster sustainability? And also, if sustainability is at risk, how would we be impacted by that? And then it's the role of the head of sustainability, in my opinion, to then reach out throughout the entire organization with different heads of department, with the board, to identify what can we do to either mitigate these risks and also to improve our sustainability footprint, our impact on sustainability. And that is what the notion should be. However, head of sustainability has over time transformed into, unfortunately, I would say CSR 2.0, kind of. Sustainability SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, as formulated by the United Nations in 2015, has become kind of this all-encompassing moniker, this go-to label that everyone is uh, using to express their care or their awareness of sustainability. And with that, because it's so easy to use, it has more transformed into a marketing element. And head of sustainability has become the latest position. Previously, it was diversity and inclusion. And now it is kind of sustainability, where sometimes even diversity and inclusion is rolled into, which kind of is utilized to demonstrate that an organization cares about sustainability, that an organization is addressing, tackling sustainability, which if it was being carried out in the way that it should be, that it actually has deep organizational, it, it leads to deep organizational transformations and the head of sustainability is actually in a position to organize, to implement these changes, then it would be great. But a lot of head of sustainabilities turn out to be more or less chief marketing or chief communications officers in disguise. And that is what has been wrong in recent times. You know, listening to you there, I was thinking we could rework one of Kennedy's uh, favorite maxims to ask not what sustainability can do for you, but what you can do for sustainability. I think the way you phrase it. That is a it, great quote. Yeah, I great just made quote. it up on the moment. That. So, you know, please steal <laughs> I it. Will you steal, know? I will steal that. I will steal that. <laughs> but, it, but it is very much you know, how you frame that notion of stakeholders, isn't it? And which order you put it in is what the stakeholders are doing for you or what the stakeholders can actually tackle themselves. I mean, what, what issues are we looking to, you know, to manage and what contribution can we make? You know, it's that notion of that, I guess, the sense of purpose of an organization and then framing it or your business strategy around that sense of purpose. Now, you wrote a, an excellent paper that got a lot of attention on competency greenwashing. Um, I think you probably challenged a few people in in my sort of role with the head of sustainable investments in their title. You know, we all came out of it feeling terribly inadequate. Um, but then I've always had that, you know, that, you know, that notion of sort of um, you know, not being quite, uh, what's the phrase? Um, 
Oh, Doug. But, you know, I just always feel that you can never know enough about this this subject, and that's why we want to bring in ex- experts. But could you just sort of tell us about what you meant about um, competence, you know, washing, and, uh, and then some of the challenges that people in the investment industry in particular, but also in the corporate sector, because they're the ones really at the sharp end, uh, have with achieving uh, the, the right level of competency. So first of all, thank you very much for the kind words about uh, about the paper or the article. Uh, by competence greenwashing or competency greenwashing, what I wanted to tackle, which is actually a follow-up of an article that stems from February 2020. And uh, as you said, the article had a lot of impact. It's even been referenced recently uh, by the FCA, by the UK FCA, the uh, Financial Conduct Authority, uh, in one of their recommendations, even by the Singapore Monetary Authority. So uh, that competence greenwashing is a real risk. And to say what it actually means, it is the inflation, technically is the inflation or the exaggeration of sustainability and ESG-related skills by practitioners, professionals, and other stake- interested stakeholders. So that is what it technically means at the core. And why would any practitioner professional even resort to that uh, type of uh, practice, that type of action? It is because in recent times, uh, ESG, sustainability, sustainable finance have seen exponential growth. We see it now with the Inflation Reduction Act. We see it in Europe with the green, the uh, the green, uh, what is it called, Green Act, or uh, and uh, also in the UK, everywhere you see there's a large momentum around sustainability infrastructure, green infrastructure projects, and with that, investors and other interested business stakeholders, managers have become much more aware that that is something that is important to a large part of society especially looking at uh, very uh, distressing developments in terms of uh, climate change, global warming, biodiversity loss. And with that increased awareness, companies are now, and institutions, organizations, even governments, find themselves now that they need to respond to that societal shift. They need to display, they need to show in what ways are they addressing sustainability? And do they actually have the means, resources, and capacities to do so? And that is where competence greenwashing becomes very, very relevant. Because if I am one of the organizations that is being seen as a lagger, then, of course, I will likely have uh, a disadvantage against my competitors who are seen as more competent more advanced in a leading position, the leaders in that field. So what I need to do is I need to scale my sustainability related capacities and I need to scale them quickly. And if we there's a large debate of whether there's enough people, experts in the market, what you then do is you need to see how can I scale actually my capacities. Do we have enough internal experts in the areas that cover sustainability, such as climate change, biodiversity, societal issues, uh, gender uh, gender issues, uh, 
diversity, uh, good governance practices? Do we, do we have these experts uh, already internally in our organization and we can uh, allocate some of the sustainability related matters to them? And in a lot of institutions, the, the answer was unfortunately negative. Uh, it, what, there was a large focus on financial matters, on financial materiality prior. And now that we are moving into a more sustainability related, uh, more holistic uh, uh, era of, of, of corporate uh, governance, which also includes non-financial elements. So not only short-term financial performance, but also longer-term sustainability performance, because sustainability at some point, sustainability risks might become very uh, financial. So, and with that, a lot of organizations found themselves, uh, we do not have necessarily those capacities, but we kind of still need to show that we are ready because all our competitors are doing, uh, whether that is actual solid capacity building or it's greenwashed capacity building that that uh, sometimes is very hard to uh, to uh, identify but and then it is we need to show that we have expertise and then we come to very to various practices of how you can scale capacities quickly either you designate you just relabel existing job titles by putting sustainability environmental climate, or ESG in front of it. So an analyst becomes an ESG analyst or uh, a head of CSR becomes a head of sustainability overnight. And then suddenly, bam, our organization has suddenly all these experts on paper. That is one way of going about it. Or if you feel like we need to at least somehow show some credentials, then you send them into a rapid online sustainability or ESG course that they can finish in a month's time or in in in, in, a, um, in roughly 100 hours, and then they get the title expert uh, conferred to them, and that is also very questionable. And we will probably talk a little bit more about that later. But I find these practices quite worrisome because it it requires time, exposure, and practice to become an expert in any field, and with that pressure from society and now also from regulators, from investors, for companies and asset managers to scale quickly their sustainability related capacities. That is where competence greenwashing came from, because if we cannot achieve it, or we do not necessarily have those capacities right now, but we need to show quickly that we are integrating sustainability related factors into our decision making, then competence greenwashing becomes a very relevant issue and risk, actually. And it certainly has become risky in this environment where there's a big regulatory focus now on the gap between what we claim and what we do in the industry overall. But do you think, though, the regulation itself might be causing some of the problems? You know, we, we've seen a lot of discussion on the EU taxonomy, you know, the green taxonomy, as it's sometimes called. But and then how applying it to the investment industry ahead of the corporate sector. You know, in fact, I was at a conference recently where somebody from the commission apologized to the audience for, for doing you know, SFDR, you know, sustainable financial disclosure requirements ahead of the 
corporate sustainable financial disclosure requirements because, of course, it just pushes us into discussing things where we haven't got the data and the information. You know, there is a lot here. It's a very, you know, there's some brilliant work in the taxonomy and the, in, the, you know, in the principal adverse impacts, but it's very dense. It's very detailed. And then we have to distill that down into products that then the ordinary man and woman on the street will be buying. And, and, and that's, it seems to us sometimes some of the challenge is the sheer depth and breadth of what we're trying to achieve societally and then distilling it down into a simple fund. Uh, mm. maybe, maybe we're sort of doomed to failure. Maybe you're always going to be uh, overclaiming. How, how do you see you know, regulation and disclosure in this? It's a very tough question because on the one hand, regulation is kind of needed to instill change to some extent, because I do think organizations, uh, financial stakeholders or so, they need tools to work with. They need also reliable regulatory and legal frameworks that they can depend on, because if it is all very vague, then usually uh, in the past that has shown that just leads to more confusion. So if everyone is operating on a common regulatory baseline, that is much more helpful than everyone working in their sometimes disparate echo chambers. So I do think the taxonomy and uh, other regulations that promote uh, uh, more transparency, more disclosure, more integration of sustainability-related metrics is very useful. Whether or not a taxonomy that prescribes what is green and what is not is the end of all things, that is another debate that I think goes beyond what we have in, in this discussion because taxonomy should, in an ideal scenario, just be the representation of the best available science. So it should basically just be what are the best practices in terms of uh, operating a chemical plant with the least possible pollution. So it relies on ISO standards, it relies on other standards, also national frameworks, national law, uh, European law, international law. So that is ideally what it should be. But then of course, we come around the question of feasibility. And I think that is what you are alluding to. Is what is currently required or what is demanded actually feasible with the current resources that the financial sector and even corporate stakeholders have at their disposal? Ye yes and no, because I think it is a chicken and egg issue. Because of course, businesses, they want to turn a profit, which is very normal. And on the other hand, they always want to be as efficient as possible so that they want to uh, manage costs, they want to identify where do we have redundancies, where do we have uh, potentially uh, potential waste in terms of inefficiencies, in terms of uh, budget allocation, in terms of just general financial management. However, and that is for me as an environmental scientist, one of the first things that we usually learn, which is environmental 101, is negative externalities. And those are usually costs that are not taken into account in the current uh, um, economy and not priced in into products and services. 
and unfortunately environmental and climate related and sustainability related externalities especially negative externalities uh, have currently a very bad record of being actually priced in into products and services and i do think any type of environmental compliance is part of those externalities that are currently not being priced in because or not sufficiently priced in uh, there's always this debate around the carbon tax uh, or carbon pricing uh, do we need it uh, for example emissions trading schemes and i think that the same is with data data in and of itself needs to be collected it needs to be reported it needs to be verified and that costs money and of course organizations want to avoid unnecessary costs and unnecessary regulation red tape if you will but on the other hand from a scientific point of view how can you prove sustainability without evidence and that is where the crux is so you need to start at some point and you can be very ambitious and then once there's the implementation phase and you see hey there's some things that do not work that we might need to slow down a little bit put on the brakes in some areas that of course needs to be up for discussion but on the other hand i also do think there will be no scaling and there will be no integration of expertise as well especially non-financial expertise sustainability related expertise into businesses and sectors and industries that previously had very little input from sustainability related professionals or environmental professionals or other ESG or sustainability related uh, subject matter experts beyond apart from here and there consulting someone on the sidelines but actually being involved at the decision making process that was very rare and i think that is where i think the regulation can have positive changes and it's it's actually necessary whether the taxonomy in and of itself and what activities are deemed green whether that is a final or exhaustive list i don't think so we also seen there's a lot of this debate around whether natural gas should be included or nuclear and that is certainly those are very valid discussions but i think with looking at the timeline of where we are in terms of humanity addressing climate change or biodiversity loss i think from a scientific point of view those regulations are actually pretty tame in my opinion because they are in terms of timeline not too rigid and they're even being constantly adjusted depending on or based on uh, the implementation issues that that stakeholders do face and but on the other hand we are currently very performing very badly in terms of reaching the sdgs in terms of lowering our greenhouse gas emissions in a way that is compliant or in alignment with the paris agreement in terms of addressing biodiversity loss so from a scientific point of view i would say those those regulations are very much adequate but on the other hand that should not say that we shouldn't ignore but i do think they are needed to also raise the bar on uh knowledge and on uh, training and on general integration of expert knowledge because expert knowledge would also 
sometimes maybe lead to a more realistic view of what is actually capable in terms of returns that sometimes are expected because there are natural laws that sometimes act as limits. A good example is always fisheries, where we have quotas. And the quotas were established to basically protect marine resources, because if you exhaust them at some point, your return will be zero. That is just, that is just um, uh, how marine ecosystems work if they're overexploited. And I think that is now we need to apply it to all other ecosystems because there are just limits of what the planet can regenerate at a sustainable rate. And at some points, if we constantly go over those limits, at some points, those ecosystems will break down and then you have no business. And that is, I think, where I see these regulations are actually adequate, but that should not mean that we should not acknowledge also the very substantial uh, challenges that they can uh, instill on, on stakeholders. And also, we also need to address those. In many ways, it, disclosure and regulation are a necessary but not sufficient condition to achieve a sustainable system. Yeah, it's, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think that's one thing that you know we, we've talked about with a lot of guests on this sh show is externalities and how you internalize an externality. And again, here's the role of government policymakers in framing the incentives to actually make these things internalized. You mentioned fisheries there. You mentioned climate change. You know, one, uh, both complex systems. Um, but it's interesting, Norway has just uh, announced that they'll be drilling for oil in the Arctic again. And uh, there'll be whale uh, you know, loosening the rules around hunting for whales, which seems to be in a modern age completely unnecessary on, on frankly both both counts so we have to think about those external influences and that's why i think that sometimes we do get the order wrong that if we're not thinking about it from the government the, the incentives and the structures that are placed uh, on civil society on yeah. individuals and on corporates we won't fully understand you know uh, why externalities remain completely externalized mm. it is one of the, those challenges and uh, you know I, I do worry sometimes that there's a yeah you know, that the investors are seen as the saviors for all of this, but, yeah. you know, they, they, they will actually have those countervailing forces if government policy remains volatile and yeah. at the whim of uh, short-term you know, political expediency. I, I would reverse the question even uh, in a sense that would we even be talking about the taxonomy if it would not have been proposed and the project had not been launched and the project might not have been as ambitious as it is now, because now I think a lot of stakeholders, especially in the financial sector, in the investment sector, in the corporate sector, that were very, maybe just some department, remote department, would have actually known a little bit what is environmental regulation or so. And now it really has become a front cover topic. And I do think that already in and of itself is a very good development because now there's much more awareness and awareness. And that is one of my, my, my points in the article does not automatically mean subject matter expertise, but on the other hand, awareness is a very crucial step towards 
creating sensibilities around this topic among stakeholders that previously had very little exposure to sustainability-related issues. And I do think if the taxonomy already kicked off that discussion in such a powerful way, that in and of itself is already one of its uh, achievements. I think that's a great observation, and it's certainly something that, you know, when I sit on the other side of the table to my day job and I'm, on, I'm a pension fund trustee, we have conversations that we didn't have 10 years ago about a whole variety of different topics. Now, we still struggle with implementing them, but, but we actually have them. We have that awareness, and it is that capacity building in the system. You know, you mentioned the Brundtland Commission's report in 1987, science-based, peer-reviewed, probably one of the most influential documents for thinking around sustainability. I think it's hard to beat their definition of sustainability, yet we didn't have much action after it. And, and that's, you're quite right. That's where the taxonomy for all its, you know, its challenges and rigidity uh, and, and other regulatory movements, it is elevating the debate. We're having the debate, even, even if it's sometimes quite a lively and uh, challenging debate because not everybody is on the same side of the, the page. Well, it's, I think you've made a really good observation there that we are moving forward much more and find it's very easy to get bogged down in the detail, but we are actually making making progress. And in and in terms of the sort of you know the detail, you know we're going to need some material skills. You know we're going to have to have develop some common standards and language about this. How do we? You know you talk about creating a uh, I think it's a skills matrix in your uh, in your paper, and uh, I was. That's where my imposter syndrome, that's where I was, uh, that was this word I was struggling for, which just shows where, you know, we, we record this live. Um, you know, it, it just shows the challenges for, a, for an institution to build those skills. How, 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 yeah, could you tell a little bit more about how we should think about building skills and, and particularly, I think, around where we try to do it in the area of collaboration with academia and uh, other institutions? Yeah, that is uh, probably one of the core arguments that uh, my my paper makes, and it's a very good question. So I think no profession has, uh, especially highly respected uh, professions in our society, have uh, basically become or adopted their current practices overnight. I think it was always a process, but one thing that is very common, and the professions that I'm talking about is usually regulated professions. We're talking doctors, we're talking lawyers, we're talking accountants, we're talking engineers, and we even talk traders. And what do they have in common? They Society decided that those professions and people who are operating in them, they require such a high level of trust and competence and skill that society deems it necessary to put people who want to work in those areas to a test, to basically show that they show we have the skills to operate there. And we, even though some people say that creates uh, barriers, that is uh, gatekeeping, but on the other hand, I think there's also value, tremendous value in a society checking in some professions, do the people who want to work there actually have the skills that they claim to have? And 
Currently, that is not the case in sustainability. Currently, in sustainability, everyone can claim to be a sustainability expert. Everyone can claim to be an ESG expert. And some organizations, for whatever reason, have jumped on that and basically created programs that give external, external stakeholders who are not necessarily well-versed in the world of ESG or sustainability, the impression that you can become that you uh, that you can become a sustainability expert or certified sustainability expert in around 100 hours of self-learning in an online module. That I think for me is highly detrimental, not only to those acquiring it, but also generally sustainability and sustainable finance and ESG investing in general, because what it does is it tells us that someone who uh, finished 100 hours on their PlayStation playing Formula One suddenly can navigate a Formula One race car. That is not what is the case. You might know more having been on a simulator for 100 hours, but we also don't let someone with 100 hours of training on a simulator fly a jet or an airplane. We don't do that. We say you need, first need to go through all of the different tests and training before we let you actually steer an airplane. And I think that is something that currently is not the case. Everyone who has done 100 hours of self-learning can call themselves ESG expert or ESG specialist. And I do think that will also ultimately lead in the quality of sustainability or will be reflected in the quality of sustainability-related financial products down the line, because it makes a difference if someone, for example, creates an ecosystem services fund or a biodiversity fund, and they have a very rudimentary knowledge of biodiversity and ecosystems, because I always say, I always compare it with an orchestra. The maestro or the maestra of an orchestra still needs to know something about music, because how would they otherwise identify whether one of the uh, uh, musicians in their, in their team plays the wrong note or is in the wrong tempo? They need to know in order to properly supervise. And if you do not know, if you get, if someone presents you with a bunch of biodiversity data and you have no idea, for example, about soil or about, uh, I do not know, hydrology or something, how would you even know if the data is correct or not? That doesn't mean that you need to know everything about biodiversity, but you need to have a very solid and firm grasp, which goes beyond reading the executive summary of an intergovernmental panel on biodiversity ecosystems report or for IPCC. It, if you read uh, an uh, IPCC report, uh, the executive summary, then you do not become a climate change expert. And I think that is what is so, what makes it so dangerous because if I am a customer, if I'm a client and I want my money to work, not only in terms of creating financial returns, but also take into account or ideally also create a positive impact on what is on the package 
if the package says biodiversity fund, then I would expect that it has a positive influence. But if the people managing it have only a very surface level knowledge of biodiversity, how would they be able to properly check whether the investments that they made actually created any tangible biodiversity impact and the data that they are being given, whether that is actually reliable data. And that is where I advocate strongly that we should have a common baseline for sustainability-related knowledge. So everyone who wants to call themselves sustainability expert needs to go through at least some common uh, training that is um, approved by, by, by governments, by regulators. And in order to address the issue that sustainability is extremely broad, you could, you could frame it as an ESG training because you, and you could say there's, a, there's some things that everyone needs to know. So for example, a common part. And then if you want to specialize, for example, in E, S, and G, then you can take a specialization on top of that. So for example, similar to medicine or similar to law, where you can specialize later on, for example, in family law, or you become a neurosurgeon. And I do think that is necessary because currently it is not really working because the, it, the skills matrix said that some knowledge is more material than other. And that is the difficulty because, for example, an environmental policy specialist is not the same as an environmental scientist. A climate change expert is not the same as a climate scientist. So there's a lot of nuance that needs to be taken into account. And for outsiders, it sometimes looks like equal knowledge, but in the detail, it can have very, very significant impacts on the outcome of investment decisions. And that is, I think, where I advocate that there needs to be some form of common, ideally globally accepted minimum training. But if not, at least for Europe, for the UK and for the EU, I think that would make a lot of sense to have something like that, because they are also pushing the most for sustainable finance and ESG investing. I know from our own practical experience that you know trying to be an expert in absolutely everything is impossible. Even being yeah. an expert in every aspect of climate science uh, and is really challenging. You know, we work with the Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter, and we're developing tools around that. But they, they, even there, they're around about one aspect relating to you know, the 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 probability of a company being aligned to its uh, net zero ambitions. So, but it. We can't know everything, and and I think that is one of the challenges that we have as an industry is we <clears throat> we can automatically feel the you know, the compulsion to be you know, claim to be expertise because of the point you made at the beginning around scale and marketing. You know, I, I do do worry a little bit about that with biodiversity, which is so complex it makes even climate climate science look uh, a, a walk in the park, and yet all of a sudden we have a whole bu bunch of biodiversity related funds where you know the the causal outcomes are not always as strong as they you know, as they claim 
But, you know, I think working with academia, working with people like you, Kim, is, is, is just a great pleasure. It's a great uh, way of uh, understanding better the word and, and grounding us in being, in being honest in, in the claims that we make and the things that we're looking to, to achieve. Now, one last question before we have to wrap up, as I know you and I could go on talking for hours. We have done that in the past. Um, one thing that I do like to ask all of my guests, and in a, just in a couple of minutes, you know, in a, using a sort of an old-fashioned uh, financial markets term, bull and bear, what's one thing that you're optimistic about and one thing that uh, keeps you up at night that you're pessimistic about? So one thing, it's actually a very uh, easy-to-answer question. So one thing that I'm very positive about is with discussions uh, similar to that we have right now with other stakeholders, I know there's still a lot that we can do. There are a lot of opportunities that we can do to address some of the most pressing issues around climate change and biodiversity loss and sustainability in general. There's a lot of people who want to do the right thing and who are often doing the right thing. And also having these kinds of conversation also creates additional bridges between different stakeholder groups to create new solutions. And I think that is something that makes me optimistic that we can still find solutions, we can still find common ground, we can still find uh, ways to uh, communicate between science and finance. And I think those are things that uh, basically leave me in a much more optimistic state than uh, I sometimes get when I hear just another round of negative environmental or climate-related news. However, the thing that at the same time then makes me a little bit pessimistic is time. Time is something that is currently working against us, against humanity. And then I wonder if all these discussions that we have, as useful as they are, are we energetic enough? Are we realizing the urgency of the issue sufficiently? Because I personally, uh, I grew up in Luxembourg. I now live in Japan. I am definitely on the winning side of humanity. And material issues or so never really were at the forefront of me, but that is very different from someone, for example, be it in an emerging economy where they are affected by sea level rise or by glacier melt or by droughts and to a much higher extent and also with much less resiliences to address those issues. And for me, sometimes even as an, uh, as an instructor, as a researcher, as an academic, it, it can sometimes even though I try to be as informed as possible, as I do not necessarily feel that pain on the same personal level, it can be quite removed. And therefore, even though I intend, I have good intentions, it does not really translate into the same sense of urgency that others in other parts of the world might have. And I think that is something that I constantly strive to uphold this sense of urgency, this sense of empathy, because even though I am one of the people who probably has a lot of influence over 
what will happen in the next years in this entire debate and also what actually gets done because I am less affected by it personally in my, in my immediate life. That requires a constant effort to challenge yourself, to expose yourself, and also to have uh, empathy towards what happens in other parts of the world, which then ideally will reignite the sense of urgency to tackle these very uh, large challenges. But that is always like this yin and yang, this optimism that something can be done, but also then looking at it needs to be done quicker. We did mention the Brundtland Commission report 36 years ago. I think we, yeah, that summarizes neatly you know, why time is working against us and uh, why we need that greater empathy with achieving our sustainable goals. Kim, thank you very much for your time today. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organizing the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon, and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Joe Hambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for Joe Hambro in your favorite browser.